Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Benjamin Teitelbaum, the author of Lions of the North, Sounds of the New Nordic Radical Nationalism. In this podcast, we talk about the shifts in far-right music from the 1980s to the present. We also explore how the leaders of the far-right developed a new form of politics, of which music played a key part, and which focused on moving beyond disfranchised and working-class white men. It also meant moving beyond white power music and being skinheads. In its place, they embraced hip-hop, reggae, and some pop music, albeit with far-right themes. Last, we discussed the similarities and differences between the far-right of Sweden and the United States. Well, let's start by exploring how this book came about. Why did you decide to write a book about the intersection of music and far-right politics in Sweden? Well, Rich, it, it really was a matter of multiple smaller interests of mine coming together in this one project. I think that's that's the case for, for a lot of scholars. I was interested in the one hand on the connection between Swedish identity and music, and that's primarily for personal reasons. Uh, I'm part Swedish and part Jewish, and when I was younger, I was very interested in connecting with the Swedish side of my background, and music for me was a big part of that. So that's one side of this. The other half is uh, a general interest in in right-wing politics and nationalism and what some people would call organized racism in general and, and, and in Scandinavia and in the Nordic countries in particular. Uh, where that interest comes from, I'm not entirely sure, although I, I, I do spend some time in the book reflecting on it. But anyway, so those, those two features are there. And uh, it so happens that in uh, Scandinavia and and throughout Western Europe, uh, far-right political movements have had an, an unusual, somebody, some people might say, a disproportionate investment in music throughout a, a big chunk of their contemporary history. Uh, so this was an opportunity in general to, uh, you know, to study Swedish identity, national identity, the far-right, and also the ways that music uh, can participate in all of those, all of those things. So that's the short answer <laughs> to the question. It's a, it's, it's a big topic, why, why we become interested in what we, uh, what we become interested in. So I, I have sort of a method question. And one of the things that fascinated me about your book was you didn't just listen to a bunch of CDs or watch a bunch of YouTube videos and then try to make some claims about how this was working. So talk a little bit about the method that you employed in order to get at these issues. So I did something that's not unheard of uh, in the study of the far right, but that's still still uncommon. Uh, I I wrote this book. I did this research based on ethnography, uh, which is to say, I spent extended amount of time following, getting to know, interviewing, conversing with, socializing with, living with, in some cases, uh, the people uh, who I'm writing about. Um, and, you know, of course I listened to a lot of CDs and watched YouTube videos as, as well, but, um, I 
was convinced from the beginning that you will learn more about these movements, you will learn more about the people, about their music and, and, and everything involved if you're conversing with them. Um, and your conversations with them will be more informed if if you also know them uh, to a certain certain degree. Um, that's a core a core assumption that's made, I, I think, by contemporary cultural anthropology in in the broadest sense. Uh, you know that you will learn more about living populations and people if you if you come to know them personally in the way that we talk about knowing somebody colloquially. Um, uh, but that's rarely done, rarely done in the study of of the radical right, um, for a number of reasons, of course. But that's that's how I elected to uh, to do this research. And so, what kind of relationships were you able to develop, and how were you able to uh, sort of, I don't know, make not make sense of, but. Uh, I don't know, deal with their, their viewpoints, especially someone who, as you said, um, at least um, identifies somewhat with being Jewish. Well, it, it, it wasn't always easy. Um, you know, not only am I Jewish, at least in the American context, I, I broadly, with some reservations, identify myself as, as a, you know, as, as being on the political left. Um, you know, so, so there are a number of of ways in which you know my my views and my identity can come into conflict with with those of the people who I was studying, um, and and there were plenty of moments and times when when you know you were verbally attacked or you were or, or I found myself you know being threatened with physical violence, uh, certainly uncomfortable, certainly put upon. Uh, to defend something about myself or my views or, or, or things like that. The, the thing is, which is which interests me, especially when, when I'm talking to people about uh, items like this, Rich, is that you know all those experiences took place, uh, but what was unexpected to me for me was were all the times when it was actually easier. You know when uh, you know the raging ideological political differences that I might feel between myself and, and, and someone else who I'm studying uh, actually don't get in the way of interpersonal sympathies, uh, don't get in the way of enjoying uh, time that you spend with somebody um, and, and, and don't necessarily prevent you from being able to learn from them or about them. Um, you know, people have a capacity. They, we don't always want to want to recognize, but we have a capacity uh, to identify with and and find ways to like people that that is fierce. It it is it is a drive. I think an instinct, at least in me, um, that that can overcome quite a bit. I think if you spend enough time with somebody, uh, you're prone to want to find a way to like them. Uh, of course, the the opposite can be true as as, as well. Uh, of course, we get annoyed with people we know very well, but. Um, uh, but that's not surprising. What was surprising to me was 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 really how well I was able to get along with these people. Um, I count a great number of them as friends, as a matter of fact, still today. Interesting. Well, one of the things that I learned, I learned a lot from your book, but one of the things that I learned was that just how big of a change there's been in far-right ideology and philosophy. So um, I think to understand your book, you have to kind of explain at least briefly 
where things were maybe 20 or 30 years ago and how things really changed uh, during the 2000s. Absolutely. And if, and, if, and if you don't mind, Rich, there's a, a bit of a bridge between this and, and, what, and, and your last question, because one of, one of the benefits of, of, of that kind of close contact with the people you study, um, it's, it's the case, I think, with any phenomenon that you look at from a very, very close distance is that it gets complicated. Um, and in this case, uh, my research did give me a vantage point to see just how complex and divided uh, the far right is, the so-called far right. Sometimes that term is not even uh, applicable to, to, you know, to some parts of the scene. Um, you know, we've seen from the 1980s, which was a moment of, of cultural either rebirth or birth, depending on how you want to look at it. That was a time when skinhead subculture and neo-Nazism exploded across Western Europe and eventually it spreads to the United States, Australia, Canada, and so on. Uh, But at that time, uh, the, the imagery references to nostalgia for the Third Reich was being used to confront contemporary multiculturalism and, and immigration. Uh, and and cultural pluralism more generally, and progressive politics. Uh, And that, of course, adds an ideological and rhetorical character to all of the expressions that were coming from from the far right, uh, at least who were involved in that that scene. Uh, Chauvinistic, uh, supremacist in racial terms, talking about a, a divine white race that has, uh, has a mandate to lord over other other groups, explicitly anti-Semitic, anti-democratic, uh, violent, uh, all, all of those, all of those features belonged to, to that, to that profile, uh, to that earlier scene and, and defined it, uh, such that it was the standard and there were some other variations of it or, or countercultural movements within that, within that scene. But really we're talking about the most incendiary, vulgar expressions of white identity, um, uh, that that one can one can muster in in this day and age. Uh, but from the 1980s uh, in in Europe and in North America in particular, from that time forward, we can talk about a splintering of ideologies and expressive forms, uh, and you could also talk in general about uh, a process of moderation. Uh, that earlier skinhead movement was really really good at shocking. Uh, inciting uh, and attracting the sympathy and participation of at least one sector of society, angry young white men uh, in, in, in almost all cases. Uh, but it wasn't very good at doing much else, uh, but let alone uh, organizing uh, an electorally viable political movement. So much of what takes place from the 1980s up to the present uh, is an effort to make the cause of opposing immigration, first and foremost, opposing multiculturalism, uh, making those core agendas more palatable to a wider audience and making them, making them uh, more, uh, more effective uh, as, as political messages in a number of ways. So we end up with, by the time we get to 2010, I'll skip ahead some years here. <laughs> uh, by the time we get ahead to 2010, we're talking about uh, a cause that, on the one hand, has has fewer and fewer 
thuggish, hooliganistic ambassadors walking around the streets. Fewer and fewer angry young white men in combat boots, fighting, spitting, cursing. Um, and uh, on the other hand, uh, one that has greater representation of ideological diversity. The people who I study in my book have very different understandings of what makes someone a Swede, for example. They have irreconcilable understandings of what makes somebody a Swede. Um, there, are, there are cultural nationalists, let's say, who think that being Swedish does not in fact depend or hinge on your blood, on your ancestry, on any inherited biological traits. It's instead a cultural thing. Uh, and thus that anybody could move to Sweden and become Swedish. Uh, and their agenda is, that, is, is to see Sweden completely culturally homogenous. Contrast that with, with those who think that uh, ethno-nationalists who think that being Swedish is exclusively or essentially a matter of, of blood and inherited uh, traits. Uh, that's one ideological divide. There are other methodological divides that, that rage in this scene. Um, and, but, but virtually all of them have, have tried in some way, if not their ideology, then in their culture to get away from that old skinhead archetype, um, because they recognize it as being little more than a, a, a tool for rabble rousing. With this new configuration and this ideological diversity, how did, how did music come to play sort of important sort of political piece? So to answer that, we do have to go back briefly to the beginning. So when I say that skinhead neo-Nazism took over, uh, you know, white identity politics, explicit white identity politics in the 1980s, the tool of that takeover, the tool of the expansion, the mobilization, the attraction to angry young white men, it, it wasn't political speeches. It was not political parties. It was music. Uh, it was white. It was a, a genre of music called white power. comes out of comes out of Britain and spreads uh, spreads across Europe and North America thereafter. Um, and uh, this shouldn't surprise, I would think, someone who follows a lot of social movements, especially if a political cause isn't represented in electoral politics that well. Um, turning to symbolic expression. <laughs> Uh, turning to domains and areas of our culture where, you know, they might not have power in the real world, but they can paint another and alternative reality for themselves in which they're powerful. Music is great to do that. It energizes causes who want and seek power that they don't have. So this is the case for the radical right in the, in the 80s. And, and the whole skinhead image, the whole lifestyle really becomes wedded to white identity politics thanks to music, thanks to white power music. Some, some of your listeners might know that skinhead uh, fashion actually came from the West Indies. It has a very, very complicated history moving through Jamaica and to Great Britain. So what eventually pulled that into, into politics was music. So if music was such an important part of skinhead identity in the past, uh, you can bet that when later generations of of uh, anti-immigrant activists, of white identity politics activists, when they wanted to break away from their stereotypes, it had to traffic in music. You know, they had to comment on music in some way. Um, and for some of them, this meant making new types of music. And for some of them, it's, it meant saying, you know what, we're going to be a serious political cause and music should not have any part any special role in us. We need to be a political party like, like any other. I don't know the Democrats and the Republicans 
you know, have their own record labels and, and, and music styles that they produce. You know, they, let's, let's, let's be normal. Let's be normal politicians. So all of that is going on. But the big point, Rich, is that they had to address music because it was part of what they were trying to no longer be. And so one of the sort of the real kind of treasures of the book is you talk about how hip hop and rap were employed, at least by a handful of artists, for this kind of uh, far right or radical right message. And I think uh, some of the real interesting work in your book examines those works and how they were understood and how audiences responded to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, bear, bear in mind that, you know, these people are trying to break with expectations, break with stereotypes and, and music can be a a tool for doing that. Uh, We might not expect it. It might sound very funny, but, or not, not funny, just, just strange rather. Uh, But a good chunk of, uh, of the music coming out of this later wave of, of nationalists, has been hip hop, rap, and even reggae uh, in some cases. Uh, and in in each case, there there's a there's a there's of course part of us who could look at that and say that doesn't make any sense at all. Have these people just gone off the boat? Don't they realize rap and reggae and hip hop that these are music styles that are have their roots in and are associated with you know the Afro diasporic world? Um, with African Americans, with uh, uh, with diasporic populations throughout the West. On the other hand, there's there's a bizarre sense to it. Once you dig deep enough into the ideologies that are circulating uh, these days, um, and I can give you an example, uh, Rich. The uh, if if we take reggae, for example, the the white nationalists in some cases who are using reggae define the genre as an expression of ethnic pride, uh, opposition to globalization, opposition to oppression, um, and also a celebration for inter-ethnic brotherhood and for uh, belonging and sense of place and respect for origins. So as soon as they define the genre in very general terms like that, uh, they can find that it meshes that those those associations mesh fairly well with how they are wanting to portray themselves today. That is to say, they very few of them want to portray themselves as aggressive, chauvinistic uh, white supremacists. Instead, they want to uh, portray themselves as being victimized, under threat, uh, standing up against uh, a global network of that that swirls capital and people around the world. Um, they're, they want to view themselves as protesters as well, um, underdogs who are fighting, uh, you know, fighting for the preservation of, of, uh, of their community. So if, when, when that conceptual framing takes place, uh, these, these music genres become, uh, become more attractive and in their minds, uh, you know, more legitimate tools of expression. But it still sounds pretty funny. It still sounds pretty strange when you uh, when you hear this music and 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 you hear it adv- advancing a political cause that you normally would think of as being the very antithesis of, let's say, you know, Bob Marley or you know, or, or Public Enemy or something like that. <laughs> but there was, I mean, I think there was some discussion which you kind of analyze on the message boards, which shows that 
audiences at times could be ambivalent about how those musical forms were being used. Yes. And, 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 and even um, more complex yet, uh, you know, in, in terms of their responses, there, there are some, uh, some factions of, of the scene who think, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what style of music you use. It's just the, the messages, you know, in other words, instrumental sound has no identity, has no real association. It's all about the lyrics. So use whatever music genre you want, um, but let's not pretend like music impinges upon our identity, which is an odd, an odd way of discussing music. That's not unique to, to you know, to these actors, but it, it, uh, it, it's still somewhat uncommon. Most people tend to think that music genres, styles carry some sort of inherent association, if, if not ethnic, then political or class-based or something like that. Wouldn't this be particularly maybe problematic for like the cultural nationalists? Um, yeah, this is, this is an interesting, so, so to catch, catch the listeners up, once again, there are, there are types of nationalists. There are people who oppose immigration and multiculturalism because they want to see their native society retain its cultural profile. You know, they don't want to see more groups coming in because they're afraid that foods, clothing, religious practices, holidays, and so on are going to change, but they're not opposed ostensibly to, to racial diversity. Uh, as opposed to other people who are, are concerned about the actual bodies that are moving into, into a country and, and uh, you know, and think in terms of gene pools and eugenics and miscegenation and things like that. So for the people who say that they're campaigning for cultural purity, they're the ones who at least should theoretically be, be opposed to this type of music making, uh, who would not want to see uh, people creating music that was not inherently Swedish, let's say, um, in its, in its core, because if, if they're making patriotic music to rap or reggae, it's, it's a self-defeating purpose that is not Swedish culture in their mind. Um, the tricky thing is, is that white power music, uh, punk and metal music of the past, was itself imported Afro-diasporic music coming from rhythm and blues. Uh, you know, it has very little to do with Sweden and why that counted as being Swedish or, or you know, Swedish music, dare I say kosher music for, for these actors in the past, that, that's, you know, this is a problem. It's a big problem. Um, I guess this also does raise the question of why didn't these groups gravitate towards traditional Swedish folk music? Why wasn't that like the center of this sort of new right activity? Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful question. And this is, this is something I, I treat in my, in my fourth chapter. Um, the, uh, it was identified very much in the wake of of this diversification of of the musical output of the scene in Sweden. Uh, that it was really discussed as a problem. Uh, you saw more and more magazine articles, uh, internal discussions in the scene, saying, "Well, wait a minute. Okay, so we don't rap and reggae aren't 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 okay with us because they're not inherently Swedish. That also forces us to reject some of the punk and metal music of the past." Well, what music 
is inherently Swedish, and 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 for uh, a portion of the scene, Swedish folk music, Scandinavian folk music, became this new ob- object of of admiration. Um, you know, at the same time, they they catch themselves, and I, as a scholar, you know, catch themselves asking, you know, catch myself asking the question that you just asked me, Rich, which is why why on earth hasn't this been something that you've been celebrating and enthusiastic about up until up until this point? Uh, and it it reminds them, and I think it reminds us that that music styles like folk music today have a class profile to them. One that does not match uh, the ra- that of the radical right in many cases. Uh, practitioners of folk music in Scandinavia, much like in the United States, I think of sacred harp singing, in some cases bluegrass. You can have a rural, um, culturally, socially conservative uh, faction, but it's also very much dominated by a revivalist population that is urban, white in many cases, uh, but highly educated, affluent, and politically left-leaning. Uh, it's not the sort of thing, it's not the sort of place where these people, former skinheads, uh, angry young white men, uh, find themselves naturally. Um, and the fact that they fairly recently started thinking that, well, this should in fact be our music, has has required a lot of uh, actual groundwork, legwork, uh, you know, they've founded their own festivals. They've, they've gone out of their way to try and learn folk dances. They've gone out of their way to, to try and, uh, become educated listeners, uh, uh, and consumers of the music. Uh, but one sees the, con- the process of construction here, uh, that history needs to be overcome and that social boundaries need to be traversed in order to get these people to the type of music that they think they should be listening to. And when I think of folk music in the United States, a lot of times I think about how someone like Pete Seeger, who was very involved with socialist, the Socialist Party and the Communist Party, uh, very left-leaning, kind of took it over in the 1950s and 60s. And that I, I think to a certain extent, folk music, those are the practitioners of it, I, I think. Um, was there is there a similar thing in Sweden and how did the folk musicians respond to this embrace? I mean, I mean, it's 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 very very similar. You you saw, you know, in the same way, kind of folk music became in the United States this way to reject commercialization, uh, in imperialism in some cases. You know, the same thing is going on in Sweden. Uh, you know, folk music is a way for them to fight back against American popular culture in many in many cases. And this is this is a political left. Uh, first and foremost, that's that's doing that, um, and all of this means that you know today when we have a you have a, a music scene, a folk music scene, uh, populated by you know these 1960s, 70s hippies and and their their literal or or or, or kind of symbolic descendants. When they suddenly are are finding all this new patron patronage and interest from their political opposites, this is this is a recipe for conflict. And uh, and folk musicians themselves in Sweden who are not part of the nationalist nationalist cause have been very very uh, bold, vociferous, and in, in, in distancing themselves from uh, from this new push from the right. 
Um, as I write in the book, it, it probably has given them more attention in media than they've had past hundred years, at least, if not ever. Um, you know, uh, folk musicians wanting to say, you know, we do not want to have anything to do with the with the with the right, let alone with nationalism, um, which is something that uh, is is a bit more pronounced in Sweden. The the Swedish left has has. Uh, really looked with a great deal of skepticism on the idea of nationalism for for quite some time. Well, another thing that I thought was really interesting in in your book is that you talk about how um, so much of sort of the musical culture, especially from the 80s uh, and 90s, was really around white men. And you kind of ask the question, uh, what is the role of female musicians in in this in this new sort of vision or version of the right and you you actually identify a number of female musicians who've been fairly successful so how did this new sort of um approach to music create an opening for women to participate well it 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 traffics and stereotypes first i mean if if we had a music culture of the past that was thuggish aggressive hateful uh, those are, you know, attitudes, postures that are, that, that had been ascribed to men, uh, more often than not. Uh, and it, in attempts to actually create a new sound for the scene, one of one direction of that was, was to say, well, let's, let's create a softer, more relatable, more gentle, uh, more vulnerable, uh, sort of musical demonstration of who we are and what we want. Uh, and for that, uh, looking to women as as embodiments of all of those stereotypes became became attractive uh, to, to to both listeners and music producers and musicians alike. Um, and the artist that I, f- I focus on in the book is 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 a woman named Saga, uh, who's arguably arguably uh, you know the most successful female musician in the white nationalist music scene ever. Um, she's from Sweden, and she doesn't sing white power music. There's not a lot of screaming or, or you know, kind of heavy sounding uh, sounds coming coming in her songs. Instead, it is a light, airy pop, Madonna-like. Some people compared it to Madonna, um, and and sometimes exaggerated in its musical performances of vulnerability, of fear, of dread uh, surrounding. Uh, the demographics uh, uh, of of white populations in the West that that whites are are making a, a smaller and smaller portion uh, proportion of their of the nations that they live in um, and all of this uh, talk about white genocide about the the fact that whites may soon become a minority in in, in countries uh, where they used to be a majority or preponderant majority uh, that that has been the thrust of this music. Well, excellent. Well, one of the the things that kind of uh, I really thought was just fascinating about your book was you talk about how some of these far right theorists look to Gramsci to help them understand how to incorporate music in what they're doing, and um, that just sort of blew me away because I think of Gramsci as a figure of the left, and Gramsci has been so important for the cultural studies movement here in the United States, and so. Um, what was this vision of Gramsci and that that these guys were talking about 
and and how does it maybe change or deepen or uh, I don't know uh, make us look at Gramsci again? Well, it, it's interesting. So, so Antonio Gramsci, being this the, um, you know a neo Marxist uh, uh, theorist. In the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, you started to see a lot of French intellectuals looking to Gramsci, uh, and they were they were interested, especially in the way that this ways that this guy understood power, and uh, how he thought, in his case, that the left could go about gaining power uh, in in places where it previously had little of it. Um, and the, the thing that that Gramsci really wanted wanted to see uh, activists devote their time to was cultural campaigning or cultural struggle, as it's sometimes called. Uh, and his basic belief was that uh, really, you know, starting political parties, having referendums and things like that, referenda, uh, those those aren't worthwhile endeavors if you don't have cultural values in place in a society and a population that are going to support them. You know, so before you actually start start the business of of uh, conducting official politics, you really need to change and shape a society's culture into a way into such a such a, a position where your values are going to appear and be regarded as common sense. Um, he upended traditional Marxist theory in that respect by saying that really you shouldn't, if you want to change the way. Uh, society works. You shouldn't just think about material relationships. You shouldn't just think about economics. Uh, it's it's quite possible that culture and cultural values are the actual driver of human behavior. Uh, and the right looked at looked at those theories, compared them to the history of of post war Europe, and said Antonio Gramsci, a guy who's writing you know during World War II uh, in in most instances, uh, is what you know was prophetic he he basically saw the way that the left took power uh, in Europe especially when you get to the 60s and, and forward uh, that what they did is they invested in all of the all of the avenues uh, all of the arenas where where culture where opinions and common sense are formed uh, the left infiltrated in their mind uh, universities media uh, and by doing that it really didn't matter what political parties were uh, were contesting uh, elections because they all had to form themselves to what counted as consensus in society. Uh, and taking that lesson then, I'm getting back around to your question here, <laughs> uh, Rich, taking that lesson, they said, well, we need to do the same thing. Let's not, let's not start new anti-immigrant white identity political parties or anything of the sort, let's start seeing if we can't, on the one hand, maybe infiltrate some of these institutions, the media, entertainment, um, you know, universities and so on. Let's also see if we can't just start producing our own versions of this side by side with the mainstream one. And maybe it will get big enough uh, and attract so many people that we uh, start to see the penetration of our, our of our ideas and our values wider in society. If we do that, maybe someday um, electoral politics will actually become viable again in a way that it wasn't and 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 hasn't been since World War II. That's the that's the basic idea. That's what Gramsci inspired uh, for them and and 
you know, they don't always, you know, you've, you've heard, and I've been speaking right now about culture. Uh, they don't always specify, and Gramsci wasn't always especially clear as to what, what that means, but, but music for a lot of people is part of it. Um, if music is a certain place uh, where people turn to prior to politics to form opinions, to form identities, to form a sense of right and wrong, and what, what they think is, is not only virtuous, but also beautiful, um, then music is, is, is a legitimate place for people with lofty political aspirations to, to invest their time and energies. That's a, a great point, because one of the things that I was observing as I was reading your book was that so many books about, or so many scholarly books about music that engage politics are all about left politics. And I guess I was curious what you were thinking about how your book, how it, it kind of challenges maybe some of the underlying assumptions in a lot of the scholarly literature about popular music. Um, you don't really talk about it directly in the book, but it, it seems like you must have been thinking about that as you were working on your project. Yeah, I mean, there, there is... You know, when I hear you saying that, Rich, what, what, what I think about is, is the general impression that protest, the arts... Um, if we just stick with those two protests in the arts, that those that those are implicitly the property of the left, um, and some might also go further to say that you know, as, well, some people do. There's a scholar in my field, Timothy Rice, who writes about this that music is tends to have a positive valence to it, that it tends to be associated with goodness. <laughs> First and foremost, that doesn't mean that that people aren't aware that music can be bad or corrupting, or they might have some fear that you know if their if their children listen to the wrong type of music, they're going to turn into monsters and so on. But uh, we we tend to approach, I think, music in many cases, and at least in the West, as thinking that it, this is something good. Um, and you know, so this 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 study, this this, this book, certainly can qualify that. Uh, certainly adds adds something to uh, to our notion of what it is. Treats it more as a sort of blank signifier that can be utilized and filled with a wide range of not just political ideologies, but but even if we want to talk about moral or immoral uh, agendas. All that is there, but is that what you were referring to when when you think about the? Yeah, right. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of assumptions that music is just inherently sort of the voice of the oppressed and the left is here to kind of help explain it. But as I was reading your book, it seemed like music might be um, able to go in any direction uh, if we acknowledge it. And that maybe some of what we've been seeing is maybe left protest maybe isn't protesting as much as we, we think. Yeah. I mean, that, that can, it, it's interesting. We wouldn't want to, it, it might be, if I can catch myself, it, it, it might be too much to say that it's really a blank signifier because there are, there are parallels between uh, this, these uses of music and, and those that you would see in the 1960s, the anti-war. At, at the very, very least, there's a self-conception among the people who are involved that they are rebels in a certain sense, that they are, 
are are using music uh, as a tool to fight against forces that they can't necessarily confront by other means. Um, you know, if if they aren't an actual politician in a position of power, you know, what what do you do? You know, in this case, you um, you know you you turn to the symbolic to symbolic expression. There's lots of things to say about that. There are people who would not want to grant the same level of marginalization or, or oppression or, or downtroddenness in, in, in general to uh, white men uh, of all of all people. But it's uh, be that as it may, it it still belongs to their self impressions of themselves. Uh, and, and if that's the case, maybe it's not that that wild of a thing that they turn turn to music to express themselves. Right. Right. Which would mean that maybe the music it isn't what we always was thought it was well before before we get ready to go i i have to ask you about how the changes in the right in sweden um help us maybe better understand what's been happening in the united states um i read this book after charlottesville so to me that was on my mind um what what kind of lessons uh, do you think we can take from Sweden's experience um, as we think about what's happening in the U.S. Well, one one is that context matters. Um, it it we can't have a tendency, and a lot of people have done this, to say that what is taking place in the United States is the continuation of a trend that really really starts in in Europe. Uh, Right wing populism. You know, Donald Trump has taken the mantle of Le Pen. Uh, of Wilders, of all all these uh, these firebrands, right wing firebrands uh, on the continent, and 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 made it successful uh, to a greater extent in the American in the American system. You know, one thing that I hope my book would do for someone looking at that is is to put a little bit put the brakes on those comparisons uh, a bit. Of course, of course, there's a lot that's valid to that, um, but it's it's worth pointing out that. You know the particular history of the United States, our history of slavery, our our status having been forged, uh, somewhat arguably, not really arguably, in the fires of liberalism, um, uh, of universalism, makes American identity, uh, makes implicit and explicit white activism, mean something very different here. Um, we also have a mainstream right in this country uh, that is much more. Uh, diversified, maybe even more conservative, culturally conservative than there than there was at all uh, in Sweden. Uh, I can make this more concrete for you, Rich, by saying that, say, the Sweden Democrats, uh, this a nationalist party that came into the Swedish parliament in 2010, a lot of people compared them uh, to Donald Trump. Ideologically, the, the current leadership of that party might be somewhere I'm going to talk in scales toward the middle of the of the American Republican Party. Um, these would not be ideas that would be the stuff of any rebellion or any anti-establishment protests in the United States. They're they're just milder because Sweden's uh, Sweden's political context to begin with is is to the left of the of the United States. Um, so that's you know that's a big a big thing uh, to bear in mind right right there. Um, uh, but also, you know, as 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 we think about 
where where this is going and and what factors tend to be in place, what we have seen in Sweden and in Europe. Uh, another thing to remember is that a lot of the power for an insurgent right, for a radical right, whatever that means in relative terms, uh, its fate, its fortunes tend to rest uh, in the hands of the mainstream right. Uh, one thing that has strengthened, uh, I would say, the right in Sweden to a certain extent, um, but also kept it from formal power, has been the fact that the mainstream right in Sweden has refused to allow this fringe into the government. They refused to partner with them. They did not go into any coalition. That that means that the Sweden Democrats are the main opposition force. They've grown in sympathy, um, but they they aren't actually involved in a lot of uh, direct formal decision making. You could compare that to the United States, where you have two different factions of the American Republican Party, and really the. The fortunes of Donald Trump, we could say, rest, it seems, increasingly in the hands of people like Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and Paul Ryan, um, the establishment mainstream right. Uh, if they uh, accommodate Trump, then he has power. If they refuse to, then he doesn't. Um, those, that sort of dance uh, that we saw in Europe playing out is now playing playing out within an actual party in the United States, as opposed to you know, among parties in a coalition there um, in in ways that are, are quite illustrative, I think. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Uh, but before we go, is there any project you're working on now? Yes, my, my current project, I actually am turning away from music uh, to study a book. Uh, the topic is right-wing Orientalism. Uh, I'm interested in Western conservatives who... Uh, who feel hopeless as they look to the future and believe, regardless of elections, that uh, the West is lost to liberalism. And uh, a portion of these people are trying to to remedy that by connecting or migrating to uh, the East. So white nationalists, Hare Krishnas and Sufists, evangelical Christians who are moving uh, even to to Muslim, majority Muslim countries, uh, anti-immigrant men in the West who are marrying uh, Asian women. Uh, those are some of the case studies that I'm that I'm looking at. Well, that that sounds fascinating too. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, Rich. You've been listening to the New Books and Music podcast. Today, I've been talking with Benjamin Teitelbaum, the author of Lions of the North: Sounds of the New Nordic Radical Nationalism. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening. <laughs>